But you can always write to me at Alan Watt, site 41, box 4, Estaire, which is E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. Postal code is P as in Peter, 3, E as in Elizabeth, 4, N as in Nora, 1, P3E, 4N1. Uh, this new world order uh, is nothing really new for, for the big boys in the, in the inside. They have published books for an awful long time about the coming world order. Before World War I, they were writing about it, the big boys, the wealthy ones. Academia, I was writing about it, and about the kind of society they'd bring in. And lo and behold, they're right on time. They said it would take the beginning of the millennium to change it. Here we are, the century of change. Back with more on this topic after this break. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Uh, just mentioning that this plan. We're all living through, we're living through a plan, an agenda. It's poo-pooed, of course, by professionals put out there to poo-poo it. That's their job. In fact, they've just started up a professional debunker organization in Britain. Uh, the same group, really, that started off the Great Randy. I mean, after all, people into the paranormal and so on. Now they've got funding coming in to go after what they call conspiracy crazies, that type of thing. And to, to try and get people to accept the accepted view of events as they unfold, the accepted view, the politically correct view, in other words. So there's nothing new in this war. The war has been going on, as I say, before we were born, before your parents or grandparents were born, long before all of them. We've gone for a long, long time. A world where you must create total chaos in order to bring out a new order. That means destruction of all national values, cultural values, family values, and so on eradication of them all and to rebuild society, a society that can never go back to those old values because they'll be unable to bond with anybody else. Quite simple. If you, if you create massive promiscuity, especially introduce it very young in school, then you, they know that through experimentation, through private experimental schools like Bertrand Russell ran, that the likelihood of bonding later down in life is very, is, is very slim, almost now altogether, and therefore there's no family. And that fits into depopulation control society, which is only part of the ways, I say, towards a remade society where, like the movie Gattaca, there'll be two classes of people for a period until the old type dies off, where genetically enhanced types will predominate and get the best jobs. The underclass will go under, stop breeding, and then they'll go on to the next stage of creating better slaves or politically correct slaves. Slaves, as I say, that uh, cannot think of themselves as distinct individual human beings, more like the hive mentality. This is the words that came out of a meeting they first had in 2001, hosted by Newt Gingrich uh, and his World Science Society on, on uh, basically biochips and eugenics. And that's what they said, the, the world would be more like a hive uh, where the individual hear the thoughts passing through their, their mind from a centralized computer going to them and other, those around them. It's this whispering sound, exactly like they showed you in the Star Trek movies. Uh, 
uh, and set up your hive. And individuality will be something which is, couldn't be comprehended by any component of that hive. That's where we're going. And we, get, we go through routines uh, for war as we prepare to take down the last few countries from within, generally, if possible, and with using force, if not. And the same routines are used over and over again. We had the routine with the, the last Bush regime where they had they targeted, first of all, Afghanistan. And then the press got them to change their sights to Iraq. And then we raised that to the ground, at least their infrastructure for survival. Starved probably a million of them into death in the process, which is okay, according to Madeleine Albright, who's now been appointed to NATO as an advisor on an excessive speciality, starving people to death. But anyway... Uh, you, you find that the same technique will be used over and over. So they demonize the enemy, they accuse him of all things which they're not doing, and regardless of the information coming out from other sources, it's completely denied because they want to basically invade. Uh, and we, we even heard Bush, and I put the link up there where you'll see Bush actually say, saying that they're given uh, Saddam, I think it was two days to get out of town, right from the Westerns, right from the Westerns, because he belongs to the New American Century group. And uh, the head of that group uh, loved uh, gun smoke, apparently. The black hats and the white hats was that simple to him. Uh, that was Leo Strauss. And he actually was a Nazi, although he was Jewish. And he came over to the U.S. to teach this same kind of um, eugenics program to followers. That was his role. And he advised Rumsfeld and so on. They were students of his. So they, he loved, uh, they loved the, the gun smoke thing, and so they wanted Bush to give this speech, which he did. And he, that's what he says. He says, I'm giving Saddam two days to get out of town, you know, just like that, just like the Westerns. And we all know what happened from then. Well, now, of course, they've got a new face, and uh, I always say the same thing. A new day, new boss, same shit. But why change the formula when it works so well? Plato says it. When, when the formula works on the public... If you know how to introduce it in the same sequence, it will work again. It doesn't matter if it was a thousand years before, right up to the present, you can always use it again. Uh, and that's what they're doing. Here's an article here from Asia Time Online, Daily News, Middle East, October the 1st, 2009, by Pepe Escobar. It says, the United States and Western bomb, bomb, bomb Iran crowd Hysteria running at fever pitch ahead of Thursday's multilateral nuclear talks in Geneva could do worse than have a word with uh, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Lula actually talked to Iranian President Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad face-to-face for over an hour on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly last week. He invited Ahmadinejad to visit Brazil in November about the meeting, he went straight to the point. What I wish for Iran is what I always wanted for Brazil, a peaceful civilian nuclear program. And it's amazing, too, the average person doesn't... They always think of weaponry, because it's been forced in their mind over the last few years. Most countries have been put in nuclear power stations. That's the main power that they have. Canada has been one of the greatest proponents for this, making the can-do reactor and selling them all across the world. Anyway, the article goes on. Lula is an island of common sense in an ocean of hysteria. French President Nicolas Sarkozy publicly gave a December the deadline for Iran not to make a tragic mistake 
as in provoking Armageddon. Italian Foreign Minister Franco Fratini reiterated the group of eight was giving Iran only three more months. Like, it's almost like it, three more months to get out of town. Right? United States President Barack Obama now running three wars, which is Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan combo, demanded that Iran, which is not at war with anybody, demonstrate its peaceful intentions or be held accountable to international standards and international law. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu, it's amazing because I remember when he had three different names in the U.S. before he went over there, and, and the CIA covered up his past. That also came out in the press. So he worked for the CIA, because all the CIA and the Mossad and MI6 and all the rest of them are all one big conglomerate, you see. Anyway, it says here, Netanyahu announced to the UN, the greatest threat facing the world today is the marriage between religious fundamentalism, what a hypocrite, and the weapons of mass destruction. Impervious to irony, Netanyahu obviously forgot that Iran, like Iraq in 2003, has no weapons of mass destruction, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Remember that? They sent that in two to, to Iraq. In umpteen times, they kept coming back and said there's no weapons of mass destruction. And, and then Bush says, well, I don't believe it. We're going in anyway, you see. Because intent was to go in, regardless. So they're using the same technique here. It says, Israel not only has weapons of mass destruction, but still refuses to sign the nuclear non-proliferation treaty or allow its weapons to be inspected as Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan rushed to clarify. As for religious fundamentalism, Zionism is more than a match to Iran's Shiitism. If this was not hysteria enough, leaks in Britain revealed that the head of MI6, Sir John Scarlett, and the head of Mossad, Mir Dagan, may have established that Saudi Arabia is ready to allow Israel to bomb Iran. The House of Saud remains mute and Mutes, but not the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, which de facto controls Iran's missile program. They successfully tested long-range Shahab-3 and Sajil solid-fuel missiles with a maximum range of 2,000 kilometers, ergo even more hysteria. Now, these are, these are not nuclear warheads. General Hosen Salami, commander of IRGC's Air Force, told IRIN and TV network that Iran had a firm no first strike policy in terms of a missile war with her Israel and defended the test as linked to the approaching anniversary of the 1980 Iraqi attack on Iran the beginning of a horrible eight year war that killed at least 250,000 Iranians the US by the way supported in that war a character who later personified the new Hitler that's what they call them Saddam Hussein and it was Rumsfeld, by the way, and in the videos up there again, Rumsfeld was the envoy from the U.S. to give all the arms and the gases and so on uh, to the other side. Actually, they supplied both sides. Now, compare all this to the Western reaction to what's happening this Thursday in Beijing on China's National Day, parade for the 60th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China an array of two types of surface-to-surface -surface conventional missiles, a new land-based cruise missile, surface-to-surface -surface intermediate and long-range missiles that could carry nuclear warheads, and nuclear intercontinental missiles will be shown off in an asphalt catwalk. Not a peep from the West. It's as if this was part of Beijing Fashion Week. 
and on secret secret, the all-out hysteria reaches ludicrous overtones when it comes to the disinformation campaign around the now iconic Iranian backup nuclear enrichment plant built at the base of a mountain inside an ultra-protected underground facility controlled by the IRGC some 30 kilometers northeast of the holy city of, of Qum. The plant was built with heavily reinforced concrete that's about the same size as a football field, enough to hold 3,000 uranium-refining centrifuges. The site was duly reported by Tehran in a letter to the IAEA. According to the rules, this was done six months before a site becomes operational, so they followed the guidelines. Iranian Vice President Ali Akbar Salehu, also the head of Iran's nuclear program, has stressed there was never anything secret about the plan and justified its construction because of threats against Iran. Back with more after this break. Shakespeare said all the world's a stage and we are but the players and he was talking really about his own class you know and, the, and he's also performing you know, with the royalty and advisors etc so to them the world was a stage and we have the terms it goes into warfare the theatre of war all that kind of terminology comes from uh, this different view of looking at the world and it's amazing too to say where people poo-poo conspiracies when uh, history is nothing but one conspiracy after another, uh, even the conspiracy to go to war with countries and take countries down and buy other, and even subvert them. That's called conspiracy, you see. And you have mainstream news articles admitting that uh, Bush signed the agreement, and I'm sure it's been ratified by Obama, because it's the same agenda. And uh, they said they'd go into all these countries over there, and uh, take them down from within using soft power, financing non-governmental organizations to go in, recruit, train in university, get more members in, start demanding from within with, with protests, that type of stuff. So this is called conspiracy, you see? But they always use different terms when they promote it themselves, and that's what's interesting. It's how you see something. So to try and discount the fact there's conspiracies in the world is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. The United Nations was set up as a front group and to begin with, uh, with definitely but with a conspiracy backing it because a secret society Carl Quigley was a historian for, and he says it's a secret society run on the Jesuit-type principles. They took their techniques, they took the Freemasonic techniques, and they said they should keep it secret and they'd put this front in, this organization, that would become a world power eventually. That, and again, we know the world power is to do with literally giving us a whole new world culture, uh, a, a form of society where we'll simply obey all authority, masses of authority. So that's a conspiracy. See? But you wonder too, when they give you something... Uh, some information in the press that, that might be true, they also spin it to, to leave you with a conclusion that becomes your conclusion. And this article is from The Telegraph. I think it's even more amazing in, in Iran and maybe not so amazing after all. It says here, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad revealed to have Jewish past. So right away it's given you your premise, you see, and your conclusion. Baron says he's Jewish, you see. Mahmoud Abad Abedin Ijad's vitriol attacks on the Jewish world hide an astonishing secret evidence uncovered by the Daily Telegraph shows. 
and it's October the uh, 3rd, 2009. It says, a photograph of the Iranian president holding up his identity card during elections in March 2008 clearly shows his family has Jewish roots. A close-up of the document reveals he was previously known as Saburjian, a Jewish name meaning cloth weaver. And it says, the short note scrolled on the card suggests his family changed its name to Ahmadinejad when they converted to embrace Islam after his birth. The Saburgians traditionally hail from Aradan, Mr. Ahmadinejad's birthplace, but, and the name derives from, from Weaver of the Sabur, the name from the Jewish Talit Shaw in Persia. The name is even on the list of reserved names for Iranian Jews compiled by Iran's Ministry of the Interior. Experts last night suggested Mr. Ahmadinejad's track record for hate-filled attacks on Jews could be an overcompensation to hide his past. Now, they used the same thing with Hitler. Uh, that's a, a big theory at the time. That, uh, and, and it is true, he did go back to his... Uh, when, when they were destroying all traces, etc., of Jewish um, uh, past, that, that even the graveyard near where he was born, brought up, raised, was demolished. And it was often thought that he himself was Jewish. We'll never truly know. There's plenty, plenty of evidence to, the, to, to both sides, actually. So it's a toss-up. But here you are. They're giving you a premise here. It says Ali Nurizadi of the Center for Arab and Iranian Studies said that this aspect of Mr. Ahmadinejad's background explains a lot about him. Every family that converts into a different religion takes a new identity by condemning their old faith. By making anti-Israeli statements, he's trying to shed any suspicions about his Jewish connections. He feels vulnerable in a radical Shia society. A London-based expert on Iranian Jewish said that the Jian ending to his name specifically showed the family had been practicing Jews. Uh, he's changed his name for religious reasons, or at least his parents had, said the Iranian-born Jew living in London. Sabur Jian is a well, well-known Jewish name in Iran. A spokesman for the Israeli embassy in London said it would not be drawn on Mr. Ahmadinejad's background. It's not something we talk about, said Ron Gador, a spokesman. The Iranian leader has not denied his name was changed when his family moved to Tehran in the 1950s, but he's never revealed what it was changed from or directly addressed the reason for the switch. Relatives have previously said a mixture of religious reasons and economic pressures forced his blacksmith father, Ahmad, to change when Mr. Ahmadinejad was aged four. That means he was already basically gone through the different stages of Judaism already, which means he's still Jewish technically. So here you are. The, the reason he's going to slam every other country, especially Israel, is because he's, he's got the psychological Freudian thing of just turning against it, according to them here. You know, I can remember reading uh, history books about, uh, not conspiracy books, again, history books authorized and all that stuff, by big famous Oxford people. And they, they were talking about um, Mr. Armand Hammer in the history of Armand Hammer and gave his real name again before it was changed the father, the father changed it because they were Jewish and the Armand Hammer was the Soviet symbol for their flag the Armand Hammer and how he was getting from his family at age 5 to go and get trained by the top rabbi who was a communist leader of America at the time back with more after this break you're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network 
because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix just showing you how the stage is all set, you know, the world stage, the theater, the grand theater, and we're all simply watching it. And we're dependent upon the media to give us thoughts and opinions and all the rest of it. And you can't ratify information. However, here they go with the disclosure now. And I often wonder why now that the president or prime minister of Iran was actually born as a Jew. The guy who's shaking his fist at Israel and they're shaking the fist back at him. And the whole world's supposed to be all on edge in case something starts again. Uh, is it some kind of prearranged drama? It's a prearranged drama. It's always possible. It's always possible. I see, Armand Hammer was, with, with the consent of his father, taken away to train with the top uh, communist for the United States, and who was a rabbi. Because at that time, the Zionist movement was wide open of what it was up to. And it did take young children, train them for their career as to what they would do. And you, wonder, you just wonder, is it still going on? Why not? Why would they stop it if it works so well? And Armand Hammer, because they were all pro-communist, Soviet, uh, he eventually had an apartment next to Lenin, right next door, such great buddies, and allowed to go back and forth his whole life to the Soviet and back and forth, this great multimillionaire. Quite something, eh? What is going on? But is this a drama, as I say, to set up what appears to be a reason for bringing down Iran? as maybe two stages are set, two leaders of the stages are set to fulfill their roles here. Everybody else suffers, but somebody wins. Something really stinks about it, stinks about it to high heaven. There's no doubt about it. And remember, too, that this world order is not going to be happy until every culture is destroyed, annihilated, and part of the, the family, the, the world family. The global village with the new culture, the identical new culture worldwide. And, of course, the last few countries are being hammered right now, or, or the last few will shortly be hammered by the looks of it. So always keep an open mind. Do your homework as best you can. Don't get pulled into uh, people who just hate. You can't think clearly if you just hate, you know. Even supposing a lot of it's true, we know that the Zionist movement definitely is true. There's too much history written by the Zionists themselves. Einstein talked more about Zionism, and he, he called it Zionism, world Zionism, than he did about science. So, but you can't, but the guys, both Zionism themselves, don't have to go out hating people. If you start hating, you would never get a, a good agenda forward. You would get tied up with anger and so on. Clear heads are, are, are with those that have uh, can write up an agenda and carry it off. Clear heads, very much like judo or karate. You can't get angry at your opponent, or you'll never beat them. But we're seeing these these charades. These charades go on all the time. The charades from 9/11 and to the, the fact that the whole world's now changed since 9/11. The entire planet's which meant all the forces and all of the NGOs, all of the foundations, all of the departments of the UN were ready to go into action. They were already trained for, for, for generations to do what they're doing now, right down 
so that UNESCO is telling teachers now they should teach children to masturbate in schools and all that kind of stuff. You know, like communal masturbation time. That was all arranged. The total destruction of, of the glue that held society together is essential to bring in the new order. Absolutely essential. And then last week I mentioned an article about how you arrive at your conclusions. Now, I've read articles in the past by Bertrand Russell, Brzezinski, and others from their own books, and Julian uh, Huxley, Aldo Huxley, uh, all saying the same thing, that shortly the public will come to conclusions without knowing they're being guided to them. That's the, the beauty of giving you a, a, an opinion on something which you'll actually argue and even fight for. You don't know how you arrive at it. It's scientifically designed. And I read an article last week. It was, it was called Machines Designed to Change Humans. And it was from Stanford University, from the Persuasive Technology Lab. Persuasive Technology Lab. Now, remember, Stanford is a big player with the CIA, as all universities are, but Stanford definitely in this area of uh, getting consent from people. They did the labs that they test before in the prisons, artificial prisons, and how people go into roles and how they take on those roles, etc. Uh, they've always been into to changing behavior. They're also into to, to, uh, studies on how far people can be ordered to punish or hurt or even kill other people with controlled studies. So here they are now. They're, they're going ahead with the next step. Machines designed to change humans. Now, after I read it, uh, within 12 hours, it was pulled off the site. But I managed to get their other site, their main site. It's under Capitology. But I'll read the first part first. The part that they pulled, it says, The Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab creates insight into how computing products from websites to mobile phone software can be designed to change what people believe and what they do. Yes, this can be a scary topic. Machines designed to influence human behavior and beliefs. But there's good news. Now, here's how hypocrites, again, in this fantastical cultic we do it. But there's good news. We believe that much like human persuaders, persuasive, persuasive technologies can bring about positive change. So, in other words, if it's for what they, they claim is positive change, uh, then it's good. It's good to deceive people. See? Changes in many domains, including health, business, safety, and education. We also believe that new advances in technology can help promote, and he says, world peace in 30 years. Now, you better stop getting all fuzzy when you hear world peace and go into the definitions and all the things that must happen to create what they call peace. It means the ab absence of all opposition. It means the absence of any ulterior way of thinking about anything at all that's not authorized. That's what it means. It says, with such positive ends in mind, we're creating a body of expertise in the design theory and analysis of persuasive technologies, an area called captology. I guess that's how they capture you, captology. Eh? The capstones at the top as well. By arriving at this page, you've reached the main website for our lab, and then they go to Dr. D.J. Fogg, a guy that doesn't see too clearly. That's my little quip. On this site, you'll find an overview of captology, learn about examples, have access to captology resources, and be invited to receive our lab's free newsletter. An overview, captology is the intersection of computers and persuasion. Captology is a study of computers as persuasive technologies. 
This includes design, research and analysis of interactive computing products created for the purpose of changing people's attitudes or behaviours. As a graphic shows, Captology described the area where computing technology and persuasion overlap. This area continues to grow quickly. Each week, more computing products and websites are designed to change what people think and do. We expect this trend to continue, especially as mobile phones become more capable of running software from third parties and the Internet. Captology, that you've never heard about, is global. Captology is global. Beginning at Stanford in the 1990s, the study of persuasive technology is now a global area of research and design. In the early days, we were doing research, conducting classes, and organizing events at Stanford, but we did not organize the first global conference. We appreciate our colleagues at the Eindhoven University of Technology for organizing this in 2006. Then they've gone about the other con uh, worldwide conferences I've had. And then you go about the different articles. Read the book Persuasive Technology, Using Computers to Change What We Think and Do. Read the book Mobile Persuasion. Then see the website of B.J. Fogg, who's the lab's founder and director. So they pulled uh, that particular one off. But I'll put up a link to one of the main sites that they still have up there. And they go into about it again by John W. Schaefer. It says, Captology is a man... It's a made-up word meaning the study of computers as persuasive technology. Mentioned Mr. Fogg again, who was instrumental in developing the field. To simply put, a persuasive computer is an interactive technology that changes a person's attitudes or behaviors. Now, when you scroll down on this link, you'll see what, what uh, really captivated Mr. Fogg himself and the different things he noticed. Now, TV obviously was used to alter uh, behavior. Absolutely, and the way we behave and personality, we, we actually copy characters on TV. We copy their opinions, especially if you see them as a hero type. But he also goes on about other things that have been used to alter behavior, especially in the young. And he went on about some, a particular uh, system that was used to influence young girls not to have children. Where, and you probably saw this on TV a few years ago, that every country got these masses of uh, robot-type dolls, and young girls were given them as babies. They'd cry, they'd get up in the middle of the night, all that kind of stuff. Then they did surveys to see if they still wanted children. And he was really impressed when uh, one advocate of having children after going through four or five days packed it in and said she didn't want children anymore. If she did, it would be after the age of 30 and possibly not at all. So that's how you alter human behavior, by lying and deceiving them. Because, you see, you can't bond with a bit of plastic. That wasn't a human being. But that doesn't matter. It achieved a sense, didn't it? So he goes on about the different things that have been used on the public before. He talks about the computer as a tool. And he mentions Baby Think It Over. That was the program that was heavily promoted by the UN to put young girls off having children. And he was impressed by its, its uh, conclusions. Uh, he goes on about other techniques as well. He says, Computer is a medium, the Century Council, a non-profit organization, by the all over the place, as parallel government, eh, that fights against drunk driving, has several CD-ROM-based programs that attempt to discourage people from drinking and driving. And he mentions all these techniques that are used on them as well, and how they use them on students at university. Computer is a social actor. 
Dole 5 a Day provides a very engaging website, including a chat room and interactive program targeting young children. See, everything's targeting young children. The Soviets said the same thing, too, that they have, have to kill off the elderly or separate the children if possible to really bring up a generation uncontaminated with the values and culture of their parents. So that was bypass the ones who are alive and go right to the youth, the ones who are just starting their lives. Always, for everything. That's UNESCO's purpose. The purpose of interactive programs is to encourage children to get their five to nine recommended servings of fruit and vegetables a day. That's a lot. I, I, never, I never see that as an adult. Can't afford it. But he talks about how it, it starts to work on the way the websites are, are, are set up, even if they're not into fruit and vegetables, he says even his son commented it was a cool website because they, they understand how a child's mind is impressed and they get all these flashing things and things they identify with on the site and that pulls them in to changing their behavior. He says, in order for any computing technology to influence a person's behavior, it must be seen as credible. It must be seen as credible. Therefore, one of the largest areas of research concerning captology has been the area of credibility. Credibility, which can also be thought of as believability. So they're going to make you believe, you see, is important in several different situations. Anytime a computer contains data or information for users, that data or information must be seen as credible. He's not saying it should be truthful or that its intent should be disclosed to the viewer. He's saying that it must be presented as credible. Anytime a computer is used to teach or instruct users, it must be used, viewed as credible. However, users' variables affect credibility. The credibility of computer technologies varies with users' experience. A novice user might view computers as more credible than an expert user. It never takes time to, to figure out the, the nonsense. A user who needs information might more be inclined to believe the information than a user who does not need the information. That's interesting, too. See, if you're, if you're predisposed to wanting to believe something, you go looking for the topic. And no doubt you'll find what you want to believe. It's out there. But if you're not really interested in it, and it comes your way, you think more critically, and you probably will dismiss it. There's much research about captology has been conducted in association with the Stanford Web Credibility Research Organization. See, they've covered every single part, and they'll get funding for it all. And believe you me, as I say, the big boys in CIA are completely involved in this. Part of the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. A website's credibility depends largely on how it's designed. It should make it easy to verify the accuracy of the information on your site. But mind you, too, if you want to alter the behavior, and I'm adding this in here, you also know the techniques of omitting other information on the same topic. So, the, so they'll come to the conclusion you desire them to come to. That's how it standardly generally works. So that's what's happening. Remember what Skinner said, to alter people's behavior, you must alter something in their environment. Something in their environment. Um, oh, there's uh, a caller is here on the phone. I'll better grab them before the time's up. It's amazing how this time flies in here. There's Rachel from North Carolina. Are you there, Rachel? Hi, Alan. Yes. Thanks for taking my call. Love calling you. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to call you about something because I just couldn't believe it. Um, I went into the grocery store the other day, and um, I encountered the climate change scam firsthand. Uh -huh. 
I went up to the um, counter, the, um, and the lady asked me, as she always does, if I brought my own bags. Of course, mm-hmm. I said no. Yep. And she says, well, starting October 1st, we're charging you five cents a bag. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at her, and I said, why, to punish us? Mm-hmm. And she says, well, you know, because of your carbon footprint, <laughs> we now we have to charge you five cents a bag. Yeah. And I just looked at her, and then the guy at the counter, the other guy says, oh, yeah, well, technically it's only three cents a bag, but um, we saw a profit-making opportunity, so we tacked two cents back on so that we could make a profit too. Yes. Yeah. So I love how um, – and then, I, you know, then I – it pissed me off so much, you know, I was running, you know, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm, you know, and I remember before, every time I would come in, I wouldn't have any bags, you know, so she said, oh, well, don't worry about it, because they're biodegradable. <laughs> so technically, if you think about it, what carbon footprint? Because if her bags are biodegradable to begin with, then what am I paying for? Yes. You know what I'm saying? And it's an utter con. I know they've done it across Canada too, and the U.S. and the world. In fact, and again, they're all cheering. Even though I've got studies here from from the guys who deal with the garbage systems, saying that it's only zero zero one percent of all landfill is garbage bags. I mean, it's, it's negligible. But the fact is, all the businesses are, are jumping on the greening for massive profit, as you say, because before the grocery guys had to buy it themselves. Now you're mm-hmm. buying it for them and giving them a profit on top. So you're quite right. But and I've the noticed for years they've been biodegradables are getting thinner and thinner for years. Right, Because right? the time you pull it away from the checkout counter, uh, whatever's in it's already fallen out the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> you can't even hold the groceries anymore. And the thing is, it's like... All, oh, hey, hold on, and, and we'll talk about that when we come back from this break. through the matrix talking to Rachel from North Carolina about the farce of her carbon footprint to do with uh, paying now for your bags from the grocery store. Actually, you're paying for their profits as well. It doesn't cost them anything now to purchase them. And, uh, and again, it's also training the public that, that you're now paying at the beginning. See, the whole idea is uh, getting used to the idea of paying a carbon tax on even a, a plastic bag to start it off because eventually we're going to be paying carbon taxes and carbon footprints on everything we purchase. And what they're saying is, do you know how much, much energy went into creating this plastic bag and how much carbon was, and such global warming was, greenhouse gases uh, from these big oil companies? They're all oil byproducts. But the guys who created the whole environmental movement, like the Rockefellers, own the oil companies. Uh, so it's, it's, it's amazing to see this, this system taking off, this farce taking off, and I think we can make the public believe anything eventually is true. Mr. Bertrand Russell said that with an navig- adequate government action, he says, that people can be made to believe anything. And, and unfortunately, it's true. Are you still there, Rachel? Yes, I am. Yes. I, what, what's interesting to me is how no, nobody notices that these fines and fees yes. trickle down so easily and quickly down to us. When mm-hmm. it comes to, you know, the climate change went, bill went through, you know, and all of a sudden now I'm paying for this stupid bag. Yeah. But when it came to the bailouts, I didn't see anything. I didn't see any of that money coming down. No. None of it. 
No. So it's like, and, and they, they give this abstract thing in the news like, oh, well, corporations are going to be charged for the carbon credit. So we should always translate that. Whenever they say a fine or a fee for anything, the mm-hmm. corporations, it's us. It's so it's going to fact, trickle down to us anyway. Here's the farce. I mean, the Economic Union Parliament gave all the big international corporations uh, millions of dollars worth of free uh, carbon credits to exchange to, to, to get them into it. And since then, there, the papers have reported that all of these international co- corporations with trading carbon credits have made multi-million dollars of profits from it. We can't do that at the bottom. Yeah. But they can at the top. See, there's nothing ever designed for the public. It's, in fact, it's all designed to push you into the dirt. That's what it's designed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had one other thing I was going to talk about, too, um, which is totally unrelated. But um, I went to um, New York City for the 9-11 We Are Change events. Yeah. And um, uh, Luke Rudowski, he um, had us go out to Times Square to pass out literature. And... Um, I was there passing it out, and there was this big barricade where most of us were standing, and then I was kind of like on the outskirts just walking around because people were coming up from the subway and that kind of thing, so I was passing out the literature there. And um, these cops come out, and um, they basically bulldog me and um, tell me that I have to get behind the barricade. And um, so, so I said, well, you know, it's a free country, you know, I'm just passing out literature. I can do this. Um, I know about the First Amendment. So um, he tells me that if I'm at a protest, I have to be behind the barricade. So I told him, well, I'm not at a protest. I'm here passing out literature. So then he says, well, um, you're blocking pedestrian traffic. And I said, well, you know, anyone can walk around me just like they can walk around you and anyone else on the street. So I'm not moving. Yep. <laughs> I mean... I'll move if someone wants me to, but no. Mm. So, and then he just gets this like confused look on his face, and then just walks away to his superior and starts telling him what I said. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but what's strange to me is um, is that I mean he walks around like a Rottweiler, you know. Yeah. I, they must be trained to do this because they're so obnoxiously um, predatory. You know what I mean? Predatory is the word. They, they are taught that there's them and us and their mm-hmm. job is to be predators upon the people. You're quite right. They're training the public now that you are prey and you better obey. That's all they're training the public to do now. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, I did feel some victory there that, I mean, he eventually walked away when I knew that yeah. I had rights. But I bet you if I wouldn't have known, he would have been just as happy with me behind the barricade. He would have. But thanks for calling. That's the end of the show. So from Hamish and myself, for very soaking wet Ontario, Canada, felt the spring. It's good night to me. Your God, your God's go with you.